Chapter 10, Starving in Siberia. Time passed. Jeffrey came home. Winter blew into town with full force. Somewhere in there was a very strange Christmas, where Jeffrey got a mound of presents that was nearly taller than our tree. Relatives flew in from every corner of the country, but nobody smiled much. Meanwhile, I did worksheets, lots and lots of worksheets. At home, I was worried that my parents would notice the massive amount of work I was cranking out, wonder about it, comment on it. But on the days that mom was in Philly, dad was still in mute mode. And when mom was back, she slept and my dad spent time with Jeffrey. I seriously think I could have sat in the middle of the kitchen floor rubbing two sticks together over a pile of dynamite blocks and gasoline cans and my parents would have been oblivious, as long as I was keeping myself occupied. What nobody was tuning into was that there's a big difference between keeping myself occupied and actually taking care of myself. And I was angry, mindlessly, relentlessly angry every minute of every day. I did all the work my teachers gave me, and I did it well, but I was so tense while I was doing it that I broke mounds of pencils, erased right through the paper repeatedly, left indentations on my desktop from writing so hard. Word got out at school about my tragic situation, and I was like a mini celebrity. Renee was instantly my pal, and Annette forgave me as usual. Teachers were thrilled with my great new attitude and kept telling me what a trooper I was. On the rare occasions when they noticed my presence, my relatives commented about how strong and brave I was, about how lucky Jeffrey was to have me for a brother. Why didn't they try to be lucky like Jeffrey for a few months? And I wanted to scream at every teacher, why are you making me do this stupid busy work while my brother's white cell count is so low? Who cares about listing the first 10 presidents when my brother has another spinal tap on Friday? What possible use is the foil method of multiplying binomials when my brother's gums are bleeding every time he tries to brush his teeth? And I wanted to punch every kid who told me they understood my pain. Nobody understood my pain. Maybe if I had gone to each of their houses whacking random family members with a nail-studded two-by-four, they would have begun to have some basic comprehension. And my parents, they were trying, but God, I couldn't even look at them without having to bite my tongue. Meanwhile, Jeffrey went bald. He lost his beautiful golden hair. Soft ringlets were all over his pillow, the shoulders of his favorite Buzz Lightyear PJs, the bathroom sink, and then one day there was just nothing left to fall out. For a long time, he never said anything to me about it, but between that and the swelling in his face from all of the steroids he was taking, he was looking horrible. Of course, the steroids also made him hyper beyond all belief, so even while he was the only person I wasn't mad at yet, he was driving me pretty crazy. He wasn't able to go to school for weeks on end when his white blood cell counts were low, so I was basically his sole source of entertainment. A typical weeknight when he was home went like this. 1. Sit down, try to do homework. 
Two, get interrupted by Jeffrey. Please play with me. Three, ignore brother, try to do homework. Four, get interrupted by Jeffrey. Come on, Stephen, I'm bored. Beg Jeffrey for five minutes of peace. Get begged for five minutes of play. Stephen, you never, ever play with me, ever. Move entire homework operations center to different room. Repeat steps number one to seven as directed by small drugged maniac. I did play with him for at least an hour each night, but a lot of times neither of us was concentrating too much on the games. I was constantly hoping for an excuse to stop playing, and Jeffrey often wasn't feeling well. It was like checkers night at the terminal boredom and nausea clinic. Also, if anyone out there ever wants to experience the ultimate in crippling guilt, I recommend that you try beating a bald, bloated, five-year-old cancer patient at a board game. So to avoid the guilt, I would spend half of my time sneakily cheating so that Jeffrey would win over and over. Which also sucked, because the more he won, the more he wanted to play. There's another thing for which I will feel guilty forever. Jeffrey was driving me so nuts with his need for attention that I was often relieved when he went back into the hospital. I mean, I needed the time off from him so I could catch up on schoolwork. But how hideous was that? I wished for my own baby brother to be hospitalized just so I wouldn't have to play some one-sided shoots and ladders games. I had a moment of triumph in January when I finally handed in my last overdue worksheet. I wrote about it in my English class, and I even read the journal out loud. Here's the conclusion of the day's entry. My fellow students, I stand here before you a changed man. Once I lived in fear, sneaking from place to place, avoiding schoolwork at all costs. My life was a tangled mass of lies and half-truths, and I thought I could get away with it. I thought I could carry on indefinitely with my schemes and deceptions. I thought I would be able to leave my homework undone forever, but I was wrong, oh so very wrong. Friends, there exists on this planet a delicate balance, a balance between good and evil, righteousness and wretchedness, crime and punishment, and when any one man tries to tip the scales too far, they always bounce back. Beware. Beware. Okay. So the journal prompt was, pick any character in Mark Twain's works and explain how he or she is changed by his or her experiences. Miss Palma did commend me on my rhetorical flair, though, and that's got to count for something. So all my work was made up. My rents wouldn't be getting the dreaded phone call from Mrs. Galley. I could stay in all-city band, and it looked as though my school worries were over. <laughs> but who are we kidding here? Nobody knows how to get slapped down by fate like Stephen Alper. Just when things were turning around, I got the flu. Big whoop, right? Sweat a little, barf a little, lie in bed watching videos for a few days while the rents weighed on you hand and foot. Not a bad deal overall. However, if you have a brother with leukemia who needs to avoid exposure to viruses, you can't be in the same house as your parents when you have the flu. So, 
just when I needed my parents the most, in my hour of deepest need and intestinal crampage, they shipped me off across town to my grandpa and grandma's. Now, I love my grandpa as much as I love anybody, and my grandma is all right, too, when she's not dusting around me every five minutes or nagging me about my posture, but their house is, to put it mildly, primitive. Do they have a VCR? No. A DVD player? No. A CD player? Negatory. A computer? No. PlayStation? Uh Uh-uh. It was like my parents had sent their diseased eldest child to Siberia. I spent a total of eight days in that glorified hut, but I mostly just slept the first few away. The last five were the problem. How many games of Go Fish can a normal 13-year-old boy play with his grandma without suffering permanent brain damage? Hopefully the limit is more than 17 in a row I played with mine. How long can that same normal boy talk with his grandfather without running out of meaningful things to say? The answer to that is four days, if the boy is essentially comatose for the first three of them. And how weird does my grandparents' house smell, by the way? Once my nose started clearing up on day five, my nausea got even worse because there was that odd aroma of old pot roast mixed with mothballs and that's nobody's idea of a stomach soother. Speaking of pot roast, I had spent the three months before this involuntary visit subsisting only by a combination of my wits and the microwave. You would think that this week of having actual food prepared by a human cook would have been a welcome change. However, despite the lingering meat fumes, My grandma never fed me anything other than bananas, rice, applesauce, and toast in consideration of my illness. It got so bad that I actually spent hours lying on the couch watching grandma knit, plotting ways to sneak into the kitchen and steal some meat. How pathetic is that? A week with the grandparents, and I was desperate enough to to contemplate the vile crime of beef felony. Another few days and I would have probably gotten scurvy or goiter or something. There were some good things about that week, though. Lack of school attendance comes to mind as the biggest treat, although I was worried about having more makeup work to do and about failing my finals. I got lots of phone calls from my mom and Jeffrey, and they even dropped stuff off in my grandparents' mailbox for me. The nicest one was a present from Jeffrey, with a note my mom must have told him how to spell. (coughs) Dear Stephen, I'm sorry you are so sick. I sent Matt Medic to help you get better. When he gives you a magic flu blaster shot, make sure you think strong, no-flu thoughts. Dr. Perot said that's important. Also, Mommy told Daddy, you sound like you're about to die. If you promise you will get better instead of dying, I promise I will too. Your pal, Jeffrey Alper. (laughs) Good thing he put his last name on there, huh? I also got some surprise phone calls. I guess my parents were giving everyone my grandparents' number in the hopes that they would call and save me from a slow, agonizing death by malnutrition and gin rummy. Annette called me twice, a couple of the guys from school left messages, 
and Mr. Watrous and Miss Palmer each called once. It was exceptionally strange talking on the phone with teachers. I mean, I was lying there in my ratty sweatpants amid a vast sea of soggy tissues. It couldn't have been a pretty mental picture. Mr. Watrous asked me whether I was practicing, and I told him I was practicing my tissue basketball skills, and then I got all embarrassed. I mean, I know teachers are people, or at least most of them are, but you don't usually talk with them exactly like you talk with everybody else. Still, any call that got me away from watching All in the Family and Golden Girls with Grandma for the third straight evening was an A-OK call in my book. By the end of the week, I was still kind of hurt by the fact that I had been exiled. I mean, I knew exactly why it had to happen, but it still gets to you when your brother is all cozied up at home with both parents and you're stuck sucking down applesauce with the mahjong crowd way across town. I wanted attention from the rents, and I wanted it big time. Also, I was having these bizarre dreams about hunting down wild game with my bare hands. I had to get back into a diet with some protein and fast. So that Sunday, I bade farewell to my grandma, and I got into the huge cruise ship that is grandpa's car for the ride back to my actual life. But silly me, I was forgetting that I didn't have an actual life. Thus, when I got home, the banners, flags, and tumbling cheerleaders that should have been lining the curb to celebrate my return were notably absent. In fact, my parents and Jeffrey weren't even home. I got the ritual crushing handshake from Grandpa. See you soon, muscles. Let myself in, and I staggered into the kitchen so I could consume heaping quantities of life-saving meats and cheeses. Or, in the case of our barren wasteland of a refrigerator, three-quarters of a thing of yogurt and half of a microwave bean burrito. Then I booted up my computer so I could see how many people had emailed to check whether I was okay. I had 17 new messages, which looked promising, but 11 were just spam, which would have been great if I had been seeking a cheaper mortgage or a way to lose weight fast. I was looking for a bit of human contact and sympathy at the moment, so I went right to the six that were from actual people I knew, and they all said basically the same thing. Oh my God, you've been absent for two or three or four days, and you're never absent. Is Jeffrey all right? He's in my prayers. We all miss you. In case my friend's grammar and punctuation weren't upsetting enough, the fact that nobody thought there might be a problem with me was enough to blacken my mood pretty thoroughly. I stormed over to the couch and called the one person who had gradually, without my even noticing it, become my confidant, Annette. Hey, I'm home. That's great. Are you all better? We really missed you in jazz band this week, and every teacher asked me about you, and some girl was pretty curious about where you were, too. Who? Oh, somebody. Annette, I'm not in the mood to be tortured right now. Would you just tell me, please? I'm not sure about this, Stephen. Your heart might not survive the strain of this if you're not fully recovered. Annette. Okay, I'll give you a hint. She wears very tight shirts, and you drool over her like a deranged monkey boy. What? What are you talking about? I don't drool over Renee like a deranged anything. Um, but you knew who I meant right away, didn't you? 
On the one hand, Renee continued to show remarkable, if sudden, interest in me. On the other hand, what was Annette's problem? We talked for a while more until she got called to dinner. Veal parm. Evidently, there still existed an abundance of animal-based food, if one knew where to find it. And if one were just too pathetic, forlorn, and unremembered, one could always scrounge up some decade-old generic canned fruit cocktail from the depths of the basement pantry. I was sitting at the kitchen table, alone, picking out the cherries from the various beige floaty things, which made up 93% of the fruit cocktail, when my family returned home, laughing at some private joke that they had shared during my week in lockdown. Jeffrey looked at my parents for approval, and when my mom nodded, he launched himself into my lap. I thought I'd never see you again. Why? I just had the flu. But mommy said you were, I know, dying. But I wasn't dying at all, and now I'm fine. Then mom piped up. Oh, Stevie, it's great to have you back. Hey, you noticed I was gone? What was the big clue that gave it all away? Stephen Alper, what has gotten into you? The ensuing fight was not so entertaining for anyone concerned, although Jeffrey giggled when I said that Grandma was a demented, child-starving hag. Dad may have found some truth there, too, but he wasn't dumb enough to jump into the raging battle, so he just took Jeffrey off of the field of combat and up to bed. Without an audience, Mom and I wound down pretty fast without any kind of resolution. I just kind of tapered off and walked away, went downstairs, and played on my practice pad. At first, my wrists were rusty after more than a week off, but I gradually warmed up until I was playing blazingly fast and much harder than usual. When I got too tired, I stopped for a while and listened to blasting punk music on my disc man. Then I went back to the pad again. I must have been down there banging away for a couple of hours. I was trying to stay hidden until everyone else went up to bed so I wouldn't have to deal with anybody. Finally, I decided the coast was clear, so I tiptoed upstairs. Nobody was sleeping yet. As it turned out, my family hadn't necessarily been having the excellent week I had been imagining so resentfully. I could hear noises from the bathroom upstairs. Jeffrey vomiting and my mom trying to soothe them. I also saw something shocking right in front of me at the kitchen table. My dad was slumped over a pile of papers with his head cradled in his hands, and he was crying. <laughs>